This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I was joined by Luke Enrique Gomez. Luke is The Guardian Australia's Social Affairs and Inequality Editor, and he joined me to talk in-depth about the RoboDebt Royal Commission hearings. We delve into the latest evidence that's been given from senior public servants as well as ministers from the time. Luke tells us what we have learned and what we're still yet to learn. Then, I was joined by Judy Ryan. Judy is an activist and a campaigner, and she joined me to talk about her new book. It's called You Talk, We Die, The Battle for Victoria's First Safe Injecting Facility. Judy, with the support of fellow residents from Richmond and Abbotsford, successfully campaigned to get Victoria's first safe injecting facility established. She talks about the journey that got her there and what's next for safe injecting facilities in Victoria. Then, finally, I was joined by Bridie Cotter and Tom Gaunt. Bridie and Tom are the duo behind Kinsfolk Farm in Moriac. They joined me to talk about their regenerative farming practices that they've built across many years, starting out in an urban gardening or kitchen garden context, now into a highly productive organic farm. They share their tips and tricks, which are featured in their new pocket card guide to kitchen gardening. It's called Home Harvest. It is my absolute pleasure and delight to welcome onto this show, Uncommon Sense, the wonderful Luke Enrique Gomez. Luke is the Guardian Australia's Social Affairs and Inequality Editor, and he has been doing a lot of reporting and tweeting about the RoboDebt Royal Commission and the hearings that have been happening over the last few weeks, but also even prior to that, before the end of the year. And we all might be familiar with RoboDebt to some degree, what it was why it was set up and what happened, what were the real-world effects of robo-debt. But we're going to refresh your memory anyway to begin with because this is quite a complex area and once you delve into the detail through the Royal Commission hearings, you'll see that the devil really is in the detail and the documents. So I am really pleased to welcome back onto the show Luke Enrique Gomez to talk all things robo-debt and the Royal Commission. Hi there, Luke, and how are you today? I'm very good, Amy. It's always good to be on, so thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I've been so impressed with all of your coverage of this issue or the the hearings at least because it's so big. There's so much going on and I sat down and watched one day's worth of hearings and it was quite riveting. Hmm. Even the, the moments where you thought maybe that could be a bit dry, it was actually truly interesting to see what the responses were from the witnesses and how the King's Council was approaching the questioning, the line of questioning. It seemed like a bit of a dance at times, the language that was being used and the setup of questions. So I can't wait to get into some of that, some of the exchanges, which were quite fascinating, Luke. But could you please, if you don't mind, take us through what robo-debt, now that we know what it is, and it was a an illegal program, but at the time supposedly was thought to be legal, was set up by the federal government. What was robo-debt and what came before it? Okay. Well, I mean, I'll try and explain this in sort of high-level terms so people's eyes don't start um, <laughs> glazing over a bit. It can be a bit complicated. But basically, I guess the key points to think about are 
If people who receive Centrelink welfare payments have to generally report their income on a fortnightly basis, and so that's so for those who haven't been on Centrelink before, that's basically so that Centrelink can calculate how much in welfare payments you'll receive each fortnight because it's determined by how much other income you might earn. So one way that Centrelink used to check how people um, were declaring their income and basically whether or not they were doing it correctly was to check the records between the, the tax office and the records that people had um, declared on a fortnightly basis. So Centrelink officers, um, compliance workers, would um, get this data from the, the tax office, which would be generally um, PAYG data over an entire year, determining how much a person had uh, earned, and they would essentially average it out over um, a, um, a whole year um, and then compare that with um, how much a person had um, declared directly to Centrelink and check if it was correct. But then if there was a, you know, a really big discrepancy which suggested, oh, maybe the person didn't declare their income correctly, they would um, contact the person's employer or um, basically try and get other evidence first to determine whether or not the potential problem in the reporting was correct or not. Um, and that, um, that method is the method that had been used by Centrelink and its previous agencies for um, decades. Um, what changed in 2015 was that the government used, uh, the coalition government basically got advice saying, oh, well, we think we could um, get a whole bunch more revenue for the budget and we could, you know, supposedly catch a whole bunch more people who were supposedly misreporting their income to Centrelink if rather than checking um, with um, banks or checking with employers to see if the, the income was correct, we just use that annual tax figure uh, and put all the work and all the onus on the Centrelink recipient. So this is, you know, basically a reverse of the onus of proof. So to put it in really crude terms, what Centrelink started doing was taking the um, tax office annual figure of how much you might have earned over 12 months and compared it to how much you said you earned each fortnight, which is an average, um, you'd have to average out that annual income and then said, these don't match up, um, so we're going to issue you with a debt um, and you have to prove to us by getting those um, bank statements or pay slips that I mentioned earlier, you have to prove to us that you don't have a debt. Um, and that method was called income averaging. Um, and it just so turns out that that is not a legal way to, to raise a debt under social security law. And as a result, hundreds of thousands of people were issued uh, unlawful debts and the whole thing ended in a, a court settlement in the federal court of about $1.8 billion. And it is shocking to me to think that it wasn't seen to be problematic from the beginning, at least at the higher levels, because we know from some of the testimony that the middle level people did raise concerns. Because when you think about those who might be on a Centrelink payment, for example, you might have age pensioners, you could have uh, people on JobSeeker who might have some work, some kind of casual work, but not enough to get them by. So they have to supplement their income through JobSeeker or they're looking for a more permanent job. You know, these kinds of people and students, they don't really have, especially if they're casuals, regular 
consistent fortnightly incomes. They would often have variables. You're not going to get the same hours of shifts every fortnight, are you, if you're a casual worker? No. And that was something that was put to Alan Tudge, I believe, about this idea that surely you should have recognised that most people don't earn the same money in two weeks if they're on that low insecure income type of work. And he kind of, I don't know, I think he deflected it a little bit, but it made it sound like he hadn't really recognised that was the case. And I don't know, I just wondered if you had observations around those super obvious to some people flaws with the plan Mm. to average out a yearly figure into fortnightly amounts. I mean, it's it's kind of, it has been a slightly surreal experience watching the Royal Commission. Um, and I was, I didn't really, I wasn't the social affairs reporter at The Guardian in 2017 when the, the whole thing sort of kicked off into a massive controversy. But I, I must imagine that the, the, the reporters and the welfare recipients specifically, but also advocates must have just been banging their heads against the wall because w- the way that it's kind of come out in the hearings makes it so plain how um, unfair it is, how obviously um, outrageous it is to say, look, here's what you earned over 12 months. We've averaged it out into um, 26 fortnights. Um, here's what you said you earned each fortnight over a particular time. And so prove to us why the average uh, the average figure is different to the figure you reported. Like there are many reasons why that mm. could be the case. Like as you said, it's obvious. People on JobSeeker, Ausstudy, and Youth Allowance in particular are generally not working consistent hours, or, or certainly many are not. Right? Like particularly people on people on JobSeeker. Um, by definition, they're not working full time. So. Um, that we're talking about seasonal workers and casual workers. Um, and this was known within the, the department as well, like um, the, the Department of Social Services, which kind of manages social security policy as opposed to Centrelink Department of Human Services, which kind of runs Centrelink. The people in social services knew that this was clearly going to be something that threw up um, inaccurate um, calculations. Um, but... And that, this is where it really gets quite sinister, to be honest, is there was not the consideration about whether or not, you know, this was a fair way of, of doing it and, you know, whether or not the, the government pretty much had sufficient evidence to be accusing people of owing money. That was not the... The question of fairness was not really a question that really entered the minds of Alan Tudge or Scott Morrison, who I'm sure we'll talk about, or even the um, many of the people who put forward the policy um, at the higher levels. That was the, the, that wasn't the consideration. Where it clearly is just not fair at all, right? Like mm. that you don't have sufficient basis to, to tell someone, "Oh, yeah, you owe us money." It's a completely, it's a complete guessing game, to be honest. So, um, no, it's been very. Um, interesting seeing a lot of the public servants and the the politicians being quizzed on that fact because now I guess in hindsight they don't really have a a clear justifiable reason for how this is was ever fair how this these calculations could ever ever be in a fair basis for a program like this yeah yeah it reminds me of some testimony we heard which was last year in December from a former mid-level official at the Department of Social Services. His name is Andrew Whitecross. And he 
according to his own testimony, had claimed that he was told to water down the concerns he had about the scheme's legality and fairness, mm. as well as the estimated budget savings. He, he says he was told to water down those concerns that he raised multiple times, quite forcefully, he claims, and says that the acting Deputy Secretary, Catherine Hulbert, was directing him to to change his advice to, as they've said, water down his advice. And I guess there was disagreement around that with Catherine saying she didn't recall ever using that kind of language and she didn't recall giving him a direction, whereas Whitecross said, I took it as a direction. We had a disagreement in the conversation about that. I believe the policy wasn't well developed and lacked merit and we should be fairly forceful in communicating that. And uh, unfortunately... Obviously, people who did raise concerns like mm. Andrew there in the mid-levels of the public service didn't get through. Like, you know, were there other instances you've heard, Luke, about people raising concerns at the lower levels? Yeah, there are. And I think it's useful just to sort of... Um, uh, I sort of briefly touched on the timeline here, but just to, to put this in a bit of context for people. So the program started in twenty. 15, in the middle of 2015. And so the, it was worked up for the 2015 budget and it kind of been proposed in late 2014. We didn't know any of this before the Royal Commission, but we now know that there was legal advice sought about this program in 2014 internally within the Department of Social Services. And that found that this program would likely be unlawful. Um, so it would need to have the government would need to bring a bill to parliament if they want and change the law if they wanted to have it happen. Now, that obviously never happened, and it is still quite unclear how this legal advice was shelved, um, and that's something that we'll, um, I guess, continue to explore at the Royal, Royal Commission as that goes on. But um, Andrew Whitecross is, is a key figure in the sort of that DSS issue, um, the legal advice from 2014, um, again, that was Department of Social Services uh, lawyers who said, no, this is not something that we should be um, doing. It would be unlawful. Again, that was basically, that just disappeared. I mentioned in 2017 being a key moment in this uh, whole saga because that is when really people started to know that this program was happening. It had been running in the background for about a year and a half before anyone really quite understood that. Um, but by early 2017, it was uh, briefly the biggest story in the country. Um, at that time as well, um, there were um, people, there was a Centrelink officer, a woman by the name of Colleen Taylor, um, who appeared at the Royal Commission late last year. She um, wrote a 2,000-word uh, email to the top of the Department of Human Services. Colleen Taylor's job was to check debts. Um, she'd been doing it for uh, many years. And she um, wrote to the top person in her department. So, you know, there's a department of about 20,000 people. She is very low-level officer and she wrote a warning letter saying these debts are inaccurate, it's unfair, the processes are wrong, this process that we're doing is just leading to all these problems um, and her concerns as well were essentially ignored. Um, so you, there has been this dynamic of lower and middle uh, level people within the department, uh, within, um, well, within the public service 
raising concerns and people above them uh, not doing anything about it. We've had several instances of legal advice that was sought by um, public servants, which was never acted on. Um, it's been quite extraordinary, really, um, and we'll get to the politicians, uh, I'm sure, but yeah. it's been a real uh, eye-opener in terms of the public service as well, to be honest. Oh, absolutely. It's certainly not giving them a, a really good reputation here. It's not a flattering depiction of the internal workings of the public service, certainly at least in this instance. One other department I noted that had raised a, a red flag, although this was quite a lot later, in early 2017, we heard at the Royal Commission from two ATO, Australian Tax Office officials, Tyson Fawcett and Michael Kerr-Brown, and they said that they had concerns about the way that the annual PAYG data was being used to average out across fortnights. And they were talking about what they did to raise their concerns. And uh, apparently Fawcett, who was the director of data management at the ATO, sent an email to DHS the people who would be his colleagues or counterparts in early 2017 once this had hit the news, telling them to, quote, cease and desist until the ATO was assured the data was being used legally. I mean, that is pretty strong terminology to send off to a department to say, you know, we're not happy with how this data is being used and we need to look into this. Do we have any idea what happened after that, after the ATO raised their concerns? Yes, we do. So essentially um, that email, which was uh, quite, as you said, that's incredibly strong language. I should um, point out for you know, people not super across the, the finer details of the public service hierarchy, um, Fawcett, uh, despite having director in his title, that's not an overly senior member of the ATO. Um, but the response he received was basically... Um, a DS, DHS person saying, um, uh, to paraphrase, basically saying, no, we're, we're not going to, to stop the program. Um, the government would, needs us to continue with this um, debt-raising activity uh, and all, offering to have a meeting with the ATO, which is ultimately what happened in the end. Um, and the commissioner basically um, said, you know, that this sounded very much like um, DHS using uh, kind of... Um, a sense that this was a um, program strongly supported by the coalition as a way to shut down any potential concerns or dissent raised by other agencies, which is essentially the case because even though the ATO is not a main player in this saga, it, it, the data it held was crucial to mm. this whole scheme going ahead and it has obligations for um, the data that it uh, provides in a, any kind of data matching um programs to be used lawfully. And I think the ATO people understood, as we mentioned earlier, that if this is data that applies to an entire financial year uh, and it's been used to check income that has been reported on a fortnightly basis, the data is not necessarily fit for purpose. So they were concerned, but in the end, um, the ATO, uh, well, didn't really... <laughs> do anything beyond send those emails, um, that those concerns kind of fell by the wayside in the end, which has kind of been uh, a theme of 
of the the hearings throughout the you know the four and a half years that this program went ahead. Yeah, and I think a lot of people listening might be wondering why is everyone so doggedly determined to push on? You know, when we hear these red flags and oh gosh, is it legal? Is the data accurate? Lots of different concerns being raised across multiple departments in different roles and areas. And I think it's quite helpful to go back to why the scheme was brought forward and where it came from, because we did hear about Matthias Corman, who was the finance minister at the time, and he specifically had asked the government, in particular, I think it was Alan Tudge, is there any more we can get out of welfare compliance? And he was looking at budget savings and there was an impetus at the time to save money and it was part of the coalition's re-election strategy was living within your means and being, I guess, more austere in government spending. And so it seems that it was in particular being sold as a revenue-raising measure internally and that was one of those key lines that um, White Cross had pushed up against was also the statistics, the figures that had been put forward, the estimations of just how much money this scheme would claw back from Mm. the taxpayer and welfare recipients. And essentially, he was saying that according to the estimates we now have that have been shared with the RoboDebt Royal Commission, RoboDebt was expected to add $1.2 billion just to the 2016-17 bottom line. If debts were raised under the older manual person involved scheme, the one that you described before where a human was reviewing those figures, mm. that number was dropped to 150 million. So we've got 1.2 billion versus 150 million for two different approaches, one being really clearly liable to be inaccurate. It seems like that might have been a driving force, you know, this idea that this government can save money. This government can, you know, look at us, we're cracking down on quote unquote welfare cheats. Do you think that that is potentially one of the motives or one of the kind of unspoken motivations for why this train kept rolling through despite all of the hurdles and red flags that came up? Uh, Yeah, I do completely. I think it's those two points that you kind of touched on. It's the uh, budget savings um, and it's what the coalition perceived to be the political benefit of going after people on uh, on welfare benefits. And that's something that the Royal Commission has uh, explored as well um, throughout the questioning of the public servants and the politicians. A, a sort of thread running throughout it has been this commitment to um, making sure that the proposed budget savings that were um, forecast in 2015 when the program started, which was to be about uh, $1.2 billion. Um, and as the program expanded, you mentioned Matthias Coleman asking Alan Tudge for um, any measures that might um, bolster the budget further, and that ended up being the expansion of the robo-debt scheme in late 2016, early um, 2017. That was um, announced in by the coalition in the 2016 federal election as a promise, um, basically um, to do with the, the budget bottom line, but based on further savings from from welfare um, welfare benefits and welfare compliance, these were um, crucial to uh, the coalition's uh, political strategy, uh, both in terms of 
the way that it presented itself as tough on welfare, but also managing the budget. But the the the, the really, I guess, um, they were committed to these savings, which, um, regardless of what you think about the fairness of the policy, and I think I sort of made clear what I thought about it earlier. The savings themselves were never going to be realised in the way that was forecast because um, the the system itself, I mentioned earlier, relied on this reverse onus. We say we think you owe this much money. This here's a debt letter. Prove otherwise. Um, and it, in actual fact, because the debts were inaccurate, a lot of those people simply did not owe them owe that money. So. Mm-hmm. Um, if you using the calculations of annual um, and someone's annual income um, compared to what they reported fortnightly, and use that to model how much you th- money you think you can make, that's never going to be correct because that's those some of those that debt just literally is not real. It, it's you you may assert the debt, but as the process went on, people would provide pay slips, and that money that you think that you are going to make. As the government was whittled away, so in terms of the complete catastrophe of all of this, there's the fairness issue. There's the going after welfare recipients in this horrific way, um, and there's this dogged commitment to budget savings. But un- uh, overlaying all that, the savings that they thought they were going to to make were never going to event- eventuate to the, to the level that they expected anyway. And that I think is going to be something that the Royal Commission actually touches on in the um, the next public hearing, which I think I expect to cover the 2019 period. Um, even then, when the, the government, when the, the whole scheme was under a legal um, challenge by Victoria Legal Aid, the government was still trying to find ways to potentially expand this, chasing these these savings, which were, you know, moving um, further and further uh, out of reach. Yeah, well, I'm glad that will be covered because it's such a big question and it makes a lot of sense what you've just said about how flawed that figure is, that estimation is. Anecdotally, when we're thinking about the types of things that the welfare recipients had to do to prove their innocence or, or the fact that they did not actually have a debt, depending on how far back it went, they might have had to go to their bank and request bank statements, which in many cases were now on microfilm that they were that old. Like I've heard that anecdotally. They might not have kept their pay slips depending on how long the legal period was for you to keep them under the ATO rules. So there's a lot of challenges that that brought up and a lot of stress that that brought up for people who were suddenly sent a letter out of the blue saying, you know, you weren't paying attention to detail. You've misreported your income, prove that you didn't. And it raised this question for me and it came up in the questioning of Alan Tudge because he and the council and commissioner were talking about two different things. They were talking about welfare fraud and welfare compliance. And there is a very interesting and significant (coughs) distinction between the two. And it came up when they were talking about Alan Tudge's appearance on A Current Affair in December 2016, when he said something quite controversial and it was discussed in that hearing He infamously said that if a person is doing the wrong thing, quote, we'll find you, we'll track you down and you will have to repay those debts and you may end up in prison. 
And the questioning was, well, that was relating to welfare fraud. That would be the outcome for fraud where someone is knowingly committing fraud and, you know, gaming the system and there would be potentially a whole kind of apparatus around this fraud, whereas welfare compliance and non-compliance is really about human error and people not doing the right thing, you know, as a one-off or by mistake. It seems that there's a bit of a to and fro and a discussion about this between Justin Gregory KC, who's the Royal Commission's senior counsel assisting, as well as the commissioner and Alan Tudge, when they were basically saying, why haven't you distinguished in your public communications and interviews the difference between welfare fraud and the the instances of that and just how significant welfare fraud is in the scheme of things versus welfare compliance, given that welfare compliance is the majority of what they're actually talking about. And the figure that came out there was that welfare fraud accounted for just 0.1% of all transactions in the system that he oversaw. So I wonder if you could take us through that discussion and what it really told us about the way that Alan Tudge and his department also communicated the robo-debt scheme to the public in the way that it was set up in the media. Yeah, so I think just to sort of uh, put Alan Tudge's um, version of that, a current affair yeah. uh, interview, you know, forward, he says that, and I guess with some understanding of how uh, tabloid television works, I, I, I do find this to be somewhat believable. He says that in that quote you read out where he basically suggested people would go to jail, he was asked a question about, you know, what would you say to people who are deliberately uh, ripping off the taxpayer? And that was the answer he gave. And then that quote was kind of put at the start of the program. And then the program itself was about the welfare compliance program, which became known as RoboDebt, rather than other measures that the government had also introduced at this time. They, you know, that embedded the AFP in Centrelink um, and created this task force and a bunch of other things which were, you know, supposedly going after more high-level fraud. So he sort of basically, his defence is, I was taken out of context and he says that he cleared that up in, in subsequent interviews. With that caveat, I mean, he was facing fairly significant and intense questioning from the commissioner about the broader um, strategy would appear to be a broader media strategy of conflating the two issues, welfare fraud, you know, systematic fraud where you misrepresent things, whether that's whether or not you're in a relationship or other things in order to get benefits that you're you know, not legally entitled to, as opposed to what the robo-debt scheme was really about, which is about, you know, people making misreporting their income on a fortnightly basis in what was actually at the time a fairly complicated way that you had mm. to report your income, right? So Like an accounting error. Yeah, essentially. And, and you know, that, there was a spectrum to that, but, you know, it was always considered to be a sort of administrative mistakes by the person rather than any kind of incredibly nefarious stuff. But if you look at some of the rhetoric from the, the coalition at the time, um, there was a, a con continual conflation between these two concepts and not just from Alan Tudge, also from Scott Morrison. And Scott Morrison, for example, who declared himself the strong welfare cop on the beat when he came into the portfolio in early 2015. He'd just been immigration minister um, and he, he was then moved to social services and he, you know, said he, you know, he would go on 
talkback radio and talk about some of these measures which went on to become robo-debt in the context of broader welfare fraud. He, he would read out the number for people to report welfare fraud. All of this stuff was kind of conflated together. And what that did, at least according to some of the questioning from the Royal Commission, is give people a sense that they should just agree with whatever it was that Centrelink was saying. And that is already a sort of position that many people on Centrelink benefits have for, for many reasons. You know, not everybody is of means. Not everybody can, as you mentioned before, go back and get pay slips and bank statements. Some people don't have, the, uh, you know, the ability to, to do that. And so if presented with a letter saying, we believe you owe us $6,000, some people will just say, oh, okay, well, mm. I must. And if you overlay that with this kind of stigma that is is um, uh, created by telling people that, you know, um, the people caught up in this program potentially might go to jail or, um, you know, are welfare cheats, it creates this culture where um, people are, you know, really genuinely frightened to, well, defend themselves, get, get that information. And we heard many people who have appeared at the Royal Commission say that after their robo-debt experience, they decided that they wouldn't seek benefits, uh, welfare payments, social security payments anymore. They didn't feel like that was something that they wanted to go through. That was, you know, that is all part of this story, to be honest. Yeah, that's such a really important point to be making. As you said, it is possible that the ACA misrepresented Alan Tudge's quote. It was interesting to see, though, that the follow-up questions from Justin Gregory and the Commissioner were quite sceptical around his efforts to correct the record. And they said that, I'd suggest it to you that it was an easy fix, that you could put out something very clear because you had knowledge of actual fraud cases and it was minuscule, said Justin Gregory. He said, you could go further. You could actually say in your interviews that fraud represents 0.1%. I'm suggesting that the reason you didn't do it was the overlay of fraud made it more likely that people would engage with the system and repay the money. There was a particular strategy to which Tudge replied, I disagree. So there did seem to be, I guess, a clash there in the way that it was uh, interpreted, his actions. But another area that I was really interested in on that day of discussion and, and testimony was actually something that didn't get reported on much. And I just wanted your opinion. And it touched on the element of what is ministerial responsibility and what is a minister's expectations of his staff and his legal counsel and what he expects them to do, I guess, without his knowledge when they encounter an issue, what would the steps be that they should take? And one example was given was that there was a, a key conference, a law conference of very you know senior figures in the legal world in this very kind of narrow area of expertise relating to administrative law. And a senior silk, quote unquote, was giving a, a talk and a paper saying, well, actually, I think that this robo-debt scheme isn't legal. And there were multiple, you know, senior lawyers from Alan Tudge's department in the room listening to that talk. And it was put to Alan Tudge, well, don't you think that those people should have done something once they heard this really senior figure give a very extensive paper outlining his reasons why he thinks it's not legal? What, what are your expectations of your staff? And I guess that was quite an interesting and illuminating moment for me because 
you know, it took a long time for him to get to a point where he could explain what he thought it might be. But essentially it was that they might go away and resolve the problem without his knowledge. You know, they would go away and maybe discuss it with the Department of Social Security because they're the ones who really had carriage of this policy. It seems like because there were multiple departments involved, definitely obviously DHS and DSS, it's hard to find where responsibility lies when there are two departments involved. One is about the policy and one is about the implementation. Mm. And I wondered if you could, I guess, expand on what that raises and also Alan Tudge's response to questions about ministerial responsibility and his level of accountability for his staff's either actions or inaction. Yeah, I thought, um, and I guess the other thing to add is, you know, Alan Tudge was basically also was asked, well, if these people in your department um, didn't heed these uh, warnings from at the, the law conferences, uh, Peter Hanks, KC, um, if you, they didn't do anything about that, if they didn't check the legality, isn't that ultimately your responsibility mm. as the minister? And he basically rejected that assertion. I thought his response about what he expect, as you said, how he expected the process to play out after the, the lawyers from the department had seen these legal concerns was a kind of convoluted answer about, mm. yeah, well, they should go off and maybe do some uh, look into it and then maybe if they are absolutely sure that this opinion is correct, then, then the secretary should raise it with med the secretary of the department, which is the top person in the department. Christian Porter, who was the, the person who was in social services as the minister at the time, he, he had a much more sort of straightforward answer, which was, well, he would expect the uh, department to... Uh, get some analysis of this of this legal opinion directly, and then ideally raise it with the the, the minister with a, with a brief, which is kind of a very he had, gave a much more direct answer about what his expectations were. I think, to be honest, um, part of that reflects the fact that um, I think Alan Tudge was under a lot more pressure at the Royal Commission than than Christian Porter was. Alan Tudge was there for a, a, a day and a half and was really trying to kind of deflect any kind of responsibility ultimately um, falling back on him. The other point you, you you asked about was, I guess, where all the responsibility lies and how it's complicated by the fact that there are two departments involved. That is undoubtedly the case. So, you know, social services are responsible for social security law, human services now, Services Australia, they kind of run things. So Centrelink, they make sure the payments go out the door, they check people are getting the right payments, they do the debt compliance, that sort of thing. They don't theoretically make social security policy. And that intersection between those two departments has, has caused um, quite a lot of confusion throughout this entire saga. I mean, I suspect that there will be plenty of blame to go around when um, we get to the end of all of this. But it, it has made things in incredibly complicated um, and has allowed some key questions to remain unanswered. We, we are at the point now where things like what happened to the, the legal warnings in 2014 about this scheme from DSS, why were they not taken up by DHS? No one has really actually given a clear answer to that question and there's no paper anymore. There are no documents that seem to answer that question. So we are kind of getting to this point now where this relationship between these two departments is so dysfunctional that we're finding it difficult to find out 
I guess, who took the ultimate decision that led to this first being implemented. Uh, well, we know it was Scott Morrison, but what was the advice that changed that allowed him to go forward with that? And then at certain points throughout the whole scandal as well, that, that sort of um, dynamic has, has kept, kept arising. So, yeah, the, the, the fact that there are two departments involved who don't really seem to have a clear understanding of what their actual role was and now both with public servants and ministers who are trying to say that it was the other department who were responsible has made for a fairly confusing watch at times. Indeed. Well, you know, it's this idea that there was legislative change required for this to be a legal scheme and then suddenly it just drops off the policy documents and the budgetary documents. And it is really interesting to see, you know, I think it was, was it Catherine Campbell was saying that she just didn't notice that it wasn't there anymore and yes. but then but then it was raised that she actually was a stickler for detail and she was picking up quite unique typos and and things yes. that most people wouldn't have recognized so a lot of people have questioned whether it was realistic for her not to have noticed such a significant detail like a policy requiring legislative change in order for it to be legal there was another person who gave testimony, which is the former chief counsel at DHS, and that's Annette Mussolino. And I know that a lot of people were quite interested in what she might have to say. Did we learn anything new from her testimony? Well, somewhat. I mean, Annette Mussolino had a very crucial role, and I should point out she's she's still in the um, Department of Services Australia now as the... Um, uh, I think chief operating officer, but she was chief counsel throughout most of the robo debt saga, and then she was in another role, um, I think a general manager type role in um, Services Australia towards the end. She she's facing some serious questions. I think it, it must be said about um, her role in. Um, dealing with the legal warnings that services or the Department of Human Services received throughout this scandal. Um, one thing that we haven't really touched on, but um, there is the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which um, if you want to appeal a settlement decision, that's the tribunal you go to. And there were uh, dozens of cases being turned, um, being overturned at the AAT um, by people saying, this scheme is unlawful. This was happening throughout 2017 and those warnings made their way to Annette Mussolino um, and she faced some pretty serious questioning from Catherine Holmes because the, the, the question is, well, if the AAT is saying this is unlawful, um, why didn't they go and get more authoritative legal advice. You've got to remember that the only legal advice they had at this point about the scheme is, is from um, internal lawyers within the department and with all due respect to those people, that that is not really um, considered an authoritative legal advice where there are questions raised. You mentioned Peter Hanks um, before the um, top silk who um, it was noted uh, wrote a constitutional law book which uh, both the commissioner and Christian Porter had used to, to uh, during law school. Like you've got mm. someone that esteemed saying this program is unlawful, yet the department hasn't sought legal advice from the government, Australian government solicitor or the solicitor general. And and 
Mussolino's response was essentially, oh, well, um, we thought that this issue was sorted out because they'd received new legal advice in 2017 from the department's lawyers saying, oh, this act scheme actually we think is, is OK. And Catherine Holmes, the um, commissioner, essentially said, well, how could you possibly believe this was sorted out? You hadn't done anything to sort it out. You've got these decisions happening in the AAT, which I should add, um, very few people knew about because those decisions are not published um, and they hadn't sought legal advice and they didn't seek legal advice until, um, proper legal advice really, until uh, the start of 2019 in response to a, a, a federal court challenge and then in the middle of 2019 they got advice from the Solicitor General. So we're talking about a period in 2017 where they could have stopped it by getting the opinion of the Solicitor General or the Australian Government Solicitor, um, Australian um, Government Solicitor, and they didn't. Uh, and Mussolino, as Chief Counsel, um, is somebody who uh, will have to answer, and we expect she will return to the Royal Commission again um, to give more evidence. Um, so that gives you a sense of, I guess, how much interest the Royal Commission has in, in her activities during this period. And I was also interested in her comment that those AAT decisions had, quote, cut both ways, as mm. in some had fallen in their favour and some against. And that was also seemingly a response to, well, why didn't you take this seriously that the AAT was making decisions saying that this wasn't lawful? I think that's quite an inadequate response personally to say that, oh, well, some of them were pro our scheme and so yes. <laughs> when some definitely weren't. I wanted to close out the conversation talking a little bit about the political implications because we did see Alan Tudge resign just recently and he gave his speech in Parliament, his valedictory speech, talking about his time in Parliament and as Minister. And he did say something which got people a little bit upset, which was, quote, my passion has always been in social policy rather than economic or security policy, the traditional liberal focal areas. Mm. So he seemed to sell himself as a person who, you know, had an affinity with the area that he was working in, which was obviously social security and welfare and human services. Given his involvement in robo-debt and obviously ministerial responsibility essentially falling to him, what do you think of the way that he's represented his career and and also, I guess, the other political reputations that we've seen on the line over the last couple of months. Uh, well, on Alan Tudge, uh, I mean, I guess he's sort of talking to his own personal interests and I, I can't really, you know, he, he mentioned, I think, um, when he talked about social policy, he didn't mention uh, the unsurprisingly didn't mention the robot scheme specifically, but he, he talked about, you know, the integrity of the, the welfare system and also he mentioned the cashless debit card, I guess, it is entirely possible, plausible um, that people who are, um, have a you know support for those policies or ideas concepts would uh, consider themselves to have an affinity with social policy or be interested in it. So I, I guess I can't question his uh, his sincerity or, or, or not. I don't really know, but I, I know that uh, his record in terms of running the robo debt scheme at the the most pivotal point certainly left a lot to be desired. We didn't touch on his departments basically going after people that complained about it by 
obtaining the personal information of those welfare recipients and in some cases sharing them with journalists. We didn't touch on his departments uh, and his failure, I think, to to um, call an investigation into one person who had taken their own life uh, following mm. a, a, the receipt of a robo-debt. And we did, I guess, talk about the fact that the, the, the central premise for the robo-debt scheme uh, was based on something that was completely unfair and unjust, which is that you accuse people of owing the government money without sufficient evidence to do that. So his, uh, I think whatever his interests are on in, in social policy, I mean, he will ultimately, I think, be the robotet scheme will be a crucial part of what people remember in terms of his service on that um, on that front. In terms of the other ministers, I think, uh, well, I guess uh, Scott Morrison now has um, <laughs> fairly, a fairly complicated. Uh, he has an affinity um, with many portfolios. Well, he does. He has a sort of. Uh, 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 there are a few barnacles on his. Um, <laughs> on his boat, so to speak, that I think might lay there for, for a while. Um, it, and he gave I, rather verbose testimony, didn't he? So it didn't really look that great. It didn't look that great. I don't think he really cares, to be honest. Um, he, he seemed to be enjoying himself at the Royal Commission when he, he appeared, um, basically apologised for almost nothing or rather didn't really accept that he'd made any errors or, or mistakes and everything he was doing was for the right reasons. Um, I guess that's kind of what people might come to expect from the former Prime Minister at this point. Um, the other, uh, you know, the other individuals I think, I think we'll, we'll hear a bit about Stuart Robert uh, in the next hearings uh, later in the month. That will be interesting because Stuart Robert was kind of responsible for managing the whole fallout of this when it finally, uh, you know, came back to bite the government um, when, you know, they lost in, in the courts. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, Christian Porter, who was Social Services Minister at the, the time the scheme was in most controversy, I think perhaps gave a slightly more reflective appearance than anybody else so far. I mean, he still had a caveat about accepting responsibility, but he did say he he accepted some responsibility for what happened. He kind of gave this slightly uh, odd answer where he, he he was almost presenting himself as some kind of detective that would nearly got to the bottom of what was going wrong but didn't quite ask the right questions and didn't get there in the end, um, which I, I guess, you know, was in some ways reflect, you know, it showed some self-reflection, but, um, you know, it was also kind of he also said, oh, but I understand why I didn't ask those questions, which is to say that basically the public servants didn't give him enough information for him to do that, which mm -hmm. I suppose is kind of maybe a little bit of an excuse. But to be a bit fairer to Christian Porter than Alan Tudge, he's, you know, as the, Depart as the Minister for Social Services, he's responsible for a much bigger part of uh, government with a whole bunch of competing interests and, and policies. So I think that's reflected by the fact that he was at the Royal Commission for about half a day rather than a day and a half as Alan Touch was. Mm. But I, that's basically the closest we've gotten, Amy, to to someone saying, yes, I messed up <laughs> uh, as, a, as a minister. So I wow. guess we'll, we'll take it, I suppose. We will take it, yeah. It is quite shocking to hear that. I guess it'll also be really interesting to see what happens in this next round of hearings, which is only, I think, a week away, you say that that's covering the next period of time. How much longer do these commission hearings have to run? At the moment, we've only got um, one more hearing scheduled, um, which is from the 20th of February to March 10. I suspect this will probably be the last block, um, although I don't believe that's 
been set in stone. The Commission's supposed to report in, um, I think, early May, so probably need a bit of time to, to weigh up all the evidence. And, yes, uh, the actual topics haven't been announced for that those hearings starting next week, but I do suspect that they will be based on the... Uh, focused on the 2019-2020 period, which is when the government faced a court challenge which eventually brought the scheme undone and was also forced to accept that it would need to pay people back and face the class action as well. So that will be a very interesting period. And I think because of the fact that the government then by this point, by 2019, has conclusive evidence from, you know, legal advice from the government solicitor and from the solicitor general. It'll be very interesting to see, to hear the public service and the ministers perhaps explain why it took so long for them to actually concede that this was all in error. That will be, I think, one of the big focuses of those hearings kicking off from Monday. I look forward to it. And uh, I implore everyone to follow Luke on Twitter so you can follow along with Luke's tweets and your excellent articles for The Guardian, Luke. Thank you so much for taking the time to delve into this issue in so much detail. I know, as you pointed out, we didn't get to cover a whole range of other areas, some of which was related to Rochelle Miller's testimony. So if people wanted to get more detail on that, they can certainly do that by checking out your reporting as well as Rick Morton's in the Saturday paper. And you can also watch those hearings back if you are so inclined that you you wanted to watch it. Thank you so much, Luke, again, and I hope to check in with you when we know more. Thanks so much, Amy. I've just been speaking with Luke-Henrique Gomez, who is the Guardian Australia's social affairs and inequality editor, and we've just been delving into the RoboDebt Royal Commission and the evidence that's come from the hearings we've heard so far from December through till now, and obviously the uh, final round of hearings coming up next week. Hi, this is Johan Hari, the author of the book Lost Connections, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins on 3RRR. It is truly my absolute pleasure and delight to welcome this next guest onto the program. Judy Ryan is brilliant and she has been doing some amazing community organising and advocacy for quite a number of years now. All of that is detailed in a book that she's put together and written called You Talk, We Die, The Battle for Victoria's First Safe Injecting Facility. Judy I guess I'll leave it up to her to explain her background, but certainly I don't think this is what she envisaged her life would get to when she started out with the type of work she was doing. But it's certainly I'm sure that many in Melbourne are so grateful that she did pick this up and volunteer her time and advocacy to the cause. And certainly the first time I heard of Judy's work was through a friend of this program, Johan Hari. When he was here in 2018, in September, he came onto this show to talk about his book, Chasing the Scream, which I know Judy has read because it says so in her book. And Johan was absolutely raving about Judy, saying the amazing things that she had done to make this a reality, Victoria's first safe injecting facility in Richmond. So as soon as I saw this book, I thought I have to speak to Judy because anyone that Johan thinks is amazing absolutely has to be. So it is with that and my great pleasure that I welcome onto the program Judy Ryan. Hi there, Judy, and thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Hello, Amy, and thank you for your interest in my book. And that's a bit of a 
pretty heady uh, introduction. I'm, <laughs> I'm just uh, a bit floored by that because I don't think I'm amazing or brilliant in any respect. I'm just a person in our community who thought, nah, this isn't good enough. Yeah. I appreciate your humility, as I know many other people will be impressed by once they hear your story. And some may already be familiar with your story because I know that as part of this quest, engaging with community as well as the media and other parts of civil society has really been a huge part of your role. It's communication and education as well as advocacy. So we'll get into that. But I did want to establish your roots of where you've come from, the values that you've had and that you certainly clearly were influenced by your mother, who you write about in the book, and obviously where you come from in Wangaratta and how that's all come to bear on how you've seen this issue of drug use in Richmond and Abbotsford. So could you take us through your life? What led you up to this point where you moved to Richmond and, and was confronted with the types of drug use that you see there and the lethal overdoses that were quite frequent. Yes, thanks, Amy. So I was born and raised in Wangaratta, so I'm 61, nearly 62 years of age. I'm the seventh of eight children, and that was is always a great um, learning ground for your behaviours as you get older and I learned to stand up for myself and and to pick my battles with older siblings and, you know, I love them all dearly but I think families are really, it's like your apprenticeship in life is how you manage at that level in what you do next. So, um, so my mother uh, became a widow when I was five years old. My father... Morris died very suddenly of a coronary heart attack at our home in Wangaratta 67 years ago. So uh, 57 years ago, I should say. And I think it was mum's response to that um, tragedy and complete upheaval that inspired me so much. I was five, as I said, so I don't remember my father, but Mum's ability to pick herself up off the canvas, really, and learn how to do all of those things in the 1960s that women didn't usually do in terms of money management and, you know, manage the the practical aspects of home maintenance and car maintenance and that sort of thing. I mean, obviously, mother had lots of children and that was the main role of women in those days. So what I saw with my mother, Amy, was that backed into this incredible corner, she actually found a skill set that she probably never would have known she had, had Dad not died when he did. And what I mean by that is she became really uh, strong and an advocate for local people who were doing it tough. Uh, she was very involved with young women in those days, referred to as unmarried mothers who didn't get support from uh, authorised groups as they do perhaps now. And mum really uh, welcomed and nurtured a lot of those young women. She had a lot of compa- compassion for people who had lost parents, they were orphans. She was very involved in a lot of social justice activities in our community. 
But I think one of the most remarkable things that my mother, Mary Ryan, did was she was involved in a credit, the setting up of a credit cooperative for people who were struggling financially. And she uh, worked with other, a few other local um, community members and eventually they set up what has now become a very well-respected uh, credit union called the WAW, Wangaratta Albury Wodonga Credit Union, which is known throughout that uh, southern New South Wales and North East Victoria. And, of course, this was a skill that Mum had gained since our father died. She had to manage the budget. She had to work out her income, which was absolutely minuscule. And uh, she, from those experiences, she helped other people learn how to manage their income and expenditure so they could get back on their feet. And so in terms of her inspiration in my life, when I look at what happened with me when I relocated from northeast Victoria to inner city Melbourne in 2012, was that... I was confronted with a tragic health issue that many people knew about, had known about for decades, and for whatever reason had either become blasé or just, you know, accepted it as part of inner-city life. So channelling my mother's ability to take on something that I didn't really know much about I thought somebody had to stand up for this issue and I didn't initially think it would be me. I thought who they should do something about it, you know, and we all say that all the time. Mm. And I remember brushing my teeth one night looking in the mirror saying, well, look, you're the one that actually is getting a dander up about this. You're the one that's living with this. You're the one that think somebody should do something, so maybe it is you, you know. And But then you think, well, what can you do? It's just, it seemed like an incredibly difficult issue. But once again, thinking of Mary Ryan, I thought, well, look, you know, she did some extraordinary things um, and our family is very grateful for that. So I thought anything in my life would never be as difficult as what she did. So I thought I'll give this a crack. And I did. Yeah. I totally understand where you're coming from, where you describe, you know, your mother's influence and her truly inspiring efforts in the community. And it's something that I have noticed, especially in country Victoria elsewhere, is that a lot of women are really the beating heart of the country and they volunteer their time and establish social charities and groups when there is a gap. And so it's so inspiring to hear Mary was doing that in Wangaratta. And I wanted to, I guess, bring it to where you moved here in Richmond. You say you moved to North Richmond in the late 1970s. So you'd already kind of been there briefly before and then obviously came back in 2012. That was back to South Abbotsford where you wanted to be closer to your husband's elderly mother and I guess I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the area, your observations of Abbotsford and Richmond and the area that does have quite a long history of associations with drug use and the selling of drugs, especially illicit drugs. Yes. Well, 
I did leave at 88 Elizabeth Street, North Richmond, when I was in first year university in 1979. There was a drug market here then in this area, although not as rampant as it was when I returned here in 2012. I went to RMIT, and when you live in uh, Melbourne and you uh, are from the country and you, you know, one of the, uh, living in one of those, in, uh, attending one of those inner city institutions, it's a rite of passage to live in the inner city. So Fitzroy, Collingwood, mm. Richmond, Abbotsford, and it's fantastic. It's just, it makes people, it, it's kids out of ho- their homes, learn about themselves and what they, what their values are. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. And fortunately, our, our three uh children uh, did the same thing. We very much encouraged them to leave home and to do similar things. So uh, anyway, uh, so my mother um, didn't really understand that I was living in this drug area. Um, There were probably more drugs around Fitzroy Collingwood then, but definitely there still was in Richmond, North Richmond. Uh, So, but over the years, of course, I married and had kids and we moved back to the country. Whenever we came to Melbourne, we'd always bring them out to Victoria Street because of the beautiful food, you know, the interesting cuisine and flavours and that sort of thing. And so when we decided to leave Wodonga in 2012, you know, I really wanted to come and live in this area. We'd lived in country Victoria on an acre and two acres and had, you know, a boat and a ride on mower and all that jazz. And I just wanted to pair it right back and live simply in the inner city. I just, I just didn't want a complicated <laughs> life, ironically. <laughs> and um, so when we were looking for houses, interestingly, I couldn't afford to live in Richmond, so we crossed Victoria Street into, into South Abbotsford and we bought a little house here, which is great. And, um, and so what I noticed... Well, as I've suggested, I knew that there were drugs here. I knew that there was dealing and activity and people, you know, injecting in privately and that sort of thing. But once you live in a situation like this, Amy, it's very confronting. And uh, I couldn't walk home from the shops with my canvas bags without my head like on a bobble, looking left and right down laneways and in carports and people's front gardens, expecting to see a human being slumped there. And it became a regular part of life for everybody, not just me. And it was really uh, sort of dehumanising that somebody with an addiction could end up potentially dying alone because what they were doing was illegal. And I imagined if somebody was coming to those places and hiding to have a cigarette or or alcohol, which of course are both legal substances, we'd all think, well, that's just crazy. And so I just started thinking about this illicit substance and, you know, it, because it's illegal, people are actually dying unnecessarily because that's how we regard it in our society. It used to be like that. Looking back 100 years ago, people could pop into their, you know, pharmacy or whatever they were, their chemists, and get little potions and things. And, in fact, when we were kids, we had cough mixture with a little bit of, a little bit of heroin in it, you know, just to settle us down. So 
I just couldn't believe that here were people, human beings, just collapsed in this beautiful part of Melbourne, this inner city area that's, you know, it's all happening and it's near the Yarra River and close to the city. And people just accepted it. And I just got to the point. We'd lived here for four years and in 2016, I can still remember the day vividly. It was Sunday the 17th of July and I was coming home and a young guy was at my back gate um, and was collapsed there. And I just, and I knew him because I'd seen him in the area. Lovely young guy. Always said, hi, love, you know, I'll clean up after myself. And Mm. then there he was. And I just, it really... It triggered me and, you know, the rest is history, I suppose. Yeah, and you do describe some of those moments that have really affected you and also some of the moments that have affected your neighbours and the the experiences they've had and also the strategies that they've had to put in place. For example, to remove the handles from taps so that the people wouldn't be able to access water to, you know, create the substance that would be able to be injected, to park their cars in certain positions. What were some of the things that were happening? Could you describe for us the, I guess, the atmosphere as well? Because you talk about, you know, every time that there is a an overdose that could be potentially fatal, you see fire trucks, ambulances, maybe a police car, maybe not. And then you'll obviously have a lane blocked off and there's a lot of chaos. It almost feels a bit like a war zone when you're hearing sirens all the time and you're seeing this with your own eyes. And also, as you point out, the children at the local school are seeing this as well. Could you describe some of what life was like before a safe injecting facility was even an idea or was even implemented? Yes, of course. People who'd lived here for years, a lot longer than me, um, when I wrote, you know, which was talking about the book, they shared their experiences with me, which I included in the book. And one of the uh, obvious ones was the handles off the taps, you know. So people would come home and find people overdosed in their garden and the tap was still running. And so sadly, they had to take the tops off their taps. And interestingly, it became a bit of a, a an attraction throughout our campaign for journalists and students who were, you know, focusing on this on this issue. They couldn't believe it. But it made me realise that whilst this became a regular event and people didn't think about it in our area, for other people it gave them a little bit of an insight into the, uh, the, the strategies that people had to undertake to prevent people from dying in their space. Another one was when people were parking their cars, they parked them close together because people would hop in between cars to inject because it was quiet and private. But if they actually did overdose, you'd never know they were there. And you, and if you did find them, to get get in there to, to assist them to, uh, you know, re- revive them would be nigh impossible. So... All of these little strategies, it stopped the area being as deadly as it was. Mm. The other thing that I I think people never understood was the absolute impact it had on 
a day-to-day activity. So even if you didn't care about people injecting and overdosing, the reality was that our our walkways and our and our thoroughfares were often blocked with two or three emergency services vehicles for up to half an hour or an hour at a time while they managed uh, people who'd overdosed. And it, it was it was just a constant in life. And, Amy, people just accepted it. It was just madness, really, really. When you think about it now, it just does not happen now. I mean, people uh, locally who were not here for those heady days will never understand how incredibly intense that was. And it's like the frog in boiling water. If you're used to it, you just take it on the chin and say, well, this is life. But, well, for me, it was it was not life. It was really dangerous. And the other fascinating thing, of course, is that you'll look at photos that I've included in the book of three very precious ambulances lined up behind each other. You know, we need those out in the community to look after everybody, not just people... Mm injecting or overdosing and one of the things that is wonderful about the injecting room is if somebody overdoses in there they bag them with oxygen and if they're quite unwell then they will use Narcan or Naloxone. Uh, It's not blocking our laneways and and roadways. I mean that sounds harsh but it's also a, a reality and an economic reality to have, I just used to think three ambulances lined up and a fire truck. Often a fire truck will come as a first responder if there aren't um, available ambulances. And you just look and think, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. If they're sitting there for half an hour, I mean, what is that costing the taxpayer, you know, if you're going to be brutal about it? Mm. I just, I, I really, the, the visuals of living in this war zone and the sounds too, as you suggest, of the constant sirens. And interestingly, often now I'll hear a siren and you notice it. You think, oh, no, look, I hope whoever's all right. It got to the stage where you just didn't hear them anymore. Leaving yeah. the sirens. And our, and our visitors to our home would say, oh, my God, the sirens. And you, you just learn not to hear them. Mm. Whereas it's different now. You hear them. So it was chaotic. It was um, it was stressful and you talk about kids um, and kids who were living here um, going to and from preschool or or primary school would see this all the time and hear it I just it, it was a very distressing scenario yeah. yeah and it also reminds me of the um, the opening story of a young woman who overdoses and dies that you see her friend, a male friend, you know, waves you across and you offer assistance and, you know, give her your jumper. You realise you don't have naloxone on you and you feel like if you had that training in naloxone and it was there, maybe it could have made a difference to this young woman, but obviously, you know, we'll never know. But you also say that when you're reflecting on that story that, something which shocks you about it is not only, you know, this woman has a family and um, no doubt a backstory, but that also the tragedy had been witnessed by school children as well. So you imagine the types of conversations these children might be having with their parents when they come home as to what they've seen 
so I also felt that that was quite poignant because it was raising just how widely an effect this issue has on everyone. Sometimes we don't know what the consequences will be down the track for people, especially young children, witnessing these kinds of things so early. So it's something that really interested me. But I also I wanted to ask about, you know, the issue of naloxone. And, you know, one of the first thoughts I had was before safe injecting facilities were a thing, were locals able to have naloxone on them to be able to provide that kind of emergency aid in time before an ambulance arrived? Look, I suspect so, although I didn't have it. I didn't have it for the years before I became involved in this issue. Look, it is available. It was available then. It was sort of Mm. in an EpiPen form. But now it's a lot more accessible and you can get it in a nasal spray, which is a lot easier to manage and not as hard Especially for people administering it, residents who aren't medically trained. I think, you know, for me to get an EpiPen out and put it into someone's thigh is like it's very confronting. Mm. You've got someone collapsed who you don't know, and you you just put it into their thigh. I didn't have to do that, but I it is a lot easier now because you can go to the pharmacy and just ask for naloxone, and it's free. And I'm looking at my supply here. I have two boxes with, uh, with each contains two little plastic um, instruments where you can just a nasal spray. But I carry it with me all the time in my bag still because the reality is that not everybody is able to use the injecting room. There's legislated exclusions, for example, if you've got some sort of you've come out of jail and you had some conditions attached to your to your parole, which for example, you're not allowed to go down to North Richmond. They can't use it if you're pregnant, if you're under 18, if you've never used drugs before, in, injected before, you can't use it. So there's still people that don't use it that are still publicly injecting. It's not as bad as it was, but it is still happening. Uh, the other thing, of course, is when there's when there are police blitzes down here, which occasionally they'll come through and you know throw a bit of stick about you know, maybe the drug squad or whatever. The local police are fabulous. They understand the nuancing around the injecting room because you actually have to carry your drugs, your illicit substances Mm. across the, you know, streets and things to use it in the injecting room. But um, if there's a police blitz or also there's a lot of media around often when the media are sort of having a quiet day and they'll send someone down to Richmond to find something, which you always will, of course, uh, you know, a lot of people just use in our laneways, you know, spread out. So uh, it is it is a really, it's, a, it's an interesting issue. But I, the other thing I, I suppose, what how you've described that opening chapter, Amy, is, is I really wanted to draw the reader into what it was, what it's like here. Mm. I think people read about it in the paper, oh, you know, it's just North Richmond again. We are a beautiful community. It's a really amazing, eclectic, uh, universal group. There's people from every continent lives here. It's happening. It's, it's, it's compassionate. People from every country have been welcomed here for decades. So, uh, so I just think the reader will not see it just as North Richmond, i.e. Oh, yeah, the Bronx, the, you know, down there where all the drugs are. 
it's actually a living and breathing and vibrant community that really dealt with this on a daily basis. And how you described it just prior to this commentary is absolutely accurate, you know. And the other thing that's interesting about kids experiencing this, um, I've got people, I know people really well who are part of the campaign whose kids have experienced that over the years. And one, uh, Virginia, who lives near me, her son actually gave evidence at a parliamentary inquiry into drug law reform. Uh, he'd grown up here, had seen this happening and knew one of the people who was injecting an overdose one day, a boy he'd gone to school with. And uh, this young man, uh, friend of, uh, the son of my friend, spoke about how important an injecting room is in this community. So that was his the impact on his life that he grew up and realised that people dying in the streets, including friends from school, don't don't have to be dying in the streets. There is there is an opportunity to provide a health facility for people uh, that so they won't die. And I thought that was really significant that he did that. It was a very brave thing to do, and I really take my hat off to him. Oh, absolutely. I know that when you were starting out in this plight and this quest to change how life was in the area for the residents, you know, the businesses, but also the people using drugs around there, that you, you know, went around and did a lot of self-education. You went to Sydney to King's Cross to see their safe injecting facility, which was obviously a landmark facility to get, you know, inspiration and more information from them. You also went to coroner's hearings and met key people in the field who were working in this and also, you know, taking down a lot of notes and information about the issue. You also then quickly became an independent candidate for a council election, you know, almost a baptism of fire. And no doubt that was a, as well a, a learning <laughs> a, a moment Ooh. for you as it would be for anyone getting into politics for the first time. And I just wanted to, you know, get a sense from you once you decided, okay, if no one else is going to step up and do something, it's it's up to me and I need to garner support, I need to find my allies what kind of things did you do around self-education, around educating others and also garnering public support? What kind of things did you do to, to make that a reality and then to, to ultimately have quite a good outcome at the council elections despite not getting elected, you know, surprising a lot of your fellow candidates? Um, look, I think one of the best things that happened was that I didn't get onto council, Amy. I, I, the reason that I ran as an independent councillor on a single issue of supporting a safe injecting room was to do the market research. It was, it was a very mm. simple instrument, really. I never intended to, to win a seat on council, and honestly, I'm so glad I didn't, and that's <laughs> with great due respect to councillors because I think it is a really tough gig and I'm not downplaying that at all, but that was not the purpose for running because I really need to understand, did anybody else care about this issue? Is it just me? And how do you find out? I mean, I didn't yeah. have lots of money to employ a market research company that could take, you know, six months to, you know, get a strategy and then implement it and then analyse. Like, it was, time was of the essence here. There was actually no time to waste. And it was when a friend of mine from North East Victoria, Diane Shepherd, contacted me and said, oh, you know, I'm running for a small council in, in North East Victoria, Indigo, Indigo Valley, um, 
So I just thought, what a great idea, I'll do that, <laughs> which was just madness, you know, really. But because I felt that there was, it was really urgent and this was, so I found the young man at my back gate in July and the, the council elections were three months later. And so it was in that time that I was able to learn a lot purely by Google. You know, I got onto Google and found out about the injecting room in Sydney uh, and then thought that was great and I thought, well, that sounds like something we would use here that would be beneficial here. So once then I ran for council and I actually was just overwhelmed and I still get goosebumps when I think about the, the support that I got, the affirmation of my single policy which just, as I always say, it's I've got a mandate to do something, and I did. So then I immediately, as you said, I hopped on a plane, went to Sydney, had a look around that centre, just thought it was amazing, it was so professional. It was pretty boring, really, you know. It wasn't, you know, it's what people think about injecting rooms, that they're chaotic and shooting galleries, you know, the old pejorative about about these health facilities. It was just fabulous and the staff were remarkable. The, the clients were, you know, coming in and out like it was just what you do. And I really felt that they that they had a wonderful setup up there and they were terrific to us because we had nothing. You know, when we first started this embryonic group, we had no money. We, we had absolutely nothing and they sent down, you know, uh, booklets and gave us access to a wonderful video that I still, that still makes me cry. That we showed at all our forums. So you know it, that was a really big learning experience. The other thing, as you suggest too, was the inquest into the tragic death of a young woman referred to as Miss A. She died in the Hungry Jack's uh, restaurant or takeaway place in Hoddle Street. She had two little kids and there was an inquiry uh, inquest and it's the first time I've ever been in a courtroom, let alone at an inquest. And I, um, it was a proper court, so they had, you know, uh, experts in this area. And that day I learned so much. I just, it was, it was overwhelming, uh, the information, but there were the experts, there's the evidence, you know, there's the, mm. the data and the information about not just Sydney but around the world, you know, why these things work, why a fixed position injecting room is preferable to a mobile injecting room, you know, and what that means. And I just, uh, that was just a critical information for me to build the momentum moving forward, and it really helped. So really from July to December that year was like just an explosion to me um, and to really get me on the road to what would happen in 2017, which was then bringing the community with me, reaching out to people, uh, and it was, you know, it went on from there. But I think... You know, people talk about these issues very personally. And I did mention in the book that I have had two nephews, two of my sisters have lost sons to to heroin overdose. Uh, and whilst obviously that gave me the experience of living in a family with these losing these young people, and, of course, I knew both those young men when they were babies, when they were little kids, you know, when they were going to school and I thought they were hilarious and they were gorgeous and fun and 
and now they've been dead for a long time, both of them. So it gave me a huge insight into that. But at the time that they were going through their that journey, I was in the country with little children. So I actually wasn't as connected to that hurly-burly with my sisters at the time. So people think that I ran the campaign because of my nephews, and that's not true. I did give me an insight, but I had no idea. Like, this is a totally different story that, uh, you know, whether they would have used the injector room or not, I don't know. But it was just an understanding that this is what families go through. What can we do to help them? And the other big thing I've got to mention is stigma because the stigma involved in addiction for families and people with addiction is, is what's killing people. People can't talk about it. They're ashamed. They're judged. And as a community, we're really tough on those people. And then it happens to them. And it's what I've also learned in this journey, Amy, is that addiction impacts so many of us, so many of us. I've been told quietly behind the hand, don't tell anybody, but, you know, this is what happened to me and my family. Mm. And I'm just a bit over that now. I think people shouldn't be creeping around and, not speaking out and saying, I actually really need help here. I think sometimes I think is that one of the reasons that we underfund a lot of services because people think it's not that bad out there. And, in fact, it is. It's really bad with mental health issues, with addiction issues. So I suppose another aspect of my book is I'm trying to bust open that story and saying this happens to many people. Addiction doesn't care about your status, your postcode, your income, who you vote for, none of that matters. It is actually something that we all need to know about and to care for each other when we're going through this journey. And I think what reminded me of the need for further empathy was the conversation I had with Johan Hari in 2018 when he was telling me, and no doubt you'd be aware of this from his book, the causes of addiction can be things like childhood trauma and you know mental health issues when your life hasn't gone the right way and you're really struggling to cope and this can become a coping mechanism. So it's an expression of something which is more of a deeper problem, something that an individual is struggling with often. So if it's an addiction and not just someone using it for recreational use who doesn't believe they have an addiction, that can be something that is an internal struggle that a lot of people are grappling with and struggling with, you know, their everyday life. So I totally understand, you know, that need for understanding. I wanted to, I guess, jump across a lot of content because we don't have the time to cover it all and I want everyone to read your book to get the full detail of it because you did keep diaries, so what you do share is a very detailed account. But you say, you know, towards the start that Premier Andrews was emphatic in his rejection of recommendations from coroners saying that uh, we need to have these safe injecting facilities and trial them. He was saying prior to the 2014 election and onwards, I'm very clear we have no plans to introduce a facility like that. You were lobbying your local member and it was very much falling on deaf ears and there seemed to be somewhat a difference of approach. And then suddenly there's a breakthrough and the Andrews government announces this trial for a safe injecting facility in Richmond Obviously, this is quite a a momentous occasion for you and those campaigning alongside you. What has happened since that moment for those who haven't been following this closely? 
what has happened for those who were able to access the safe injecting facility who were eligible and what kind of a difference has it been making locally for the residents, for the traders on Victoria Street and also for those using drugs? Well, for me, as I mentioned before, just the, some basic things like the um, lack of sirens in the in the area is, is key. The, we just don't see the people slumped in the, the laneways any... Uh, anymore you know occasionally there are still some people as I said are still using publicly and that's you know their choice and or they have no choice maybe um so I think it's made a massive had a massive positive impact the other thing too um and I do write in the book about last year we ran a neighbor of mine and I ran a an art exhibition for the artists from the injecting room and your listeners wouldn't be surprised to know that a lot of people that use the injecting room are extremely artistic, creative through the written word or photography or painting, you know, art and addiction sadly sometimes sort of, you know, buddies. And we uh, set up an art exhibition and with art purely from created within the injecting room. So the staff there, who I absolutely must mention, are remarkable human beings. And, in fact, I think anybody who works in that sector, Amy, in mental health, in addiction, you have to be a very special person to do that, really. And it's what I've certainly experienced. And people who work sort of in the legal aid area too, you know, representing clients that are, you know, struggling with life, I just really, really take my hat off to them. We've got a lot to do with Fitzroy Legal Service, people there, just amazing human beings. And I think that has what has kept me going all of these years and the beautiful people that I've met, including the clients of the injecting room too, amazing human beings. Is One of the things is that when they got together to create the art for the art exhibition, how they one guy said, you know, we, are, we can be quite lonely. It's a very, very solitary experience most of the time. And so when the uh, staff at the uh, supervised injecting facility set up the tables for them to do art, they would sit together and talk and, you know, con- and they'd connect. That was a really key thing. So coming there is not just about injecting but connecting with each other. And sometimes, as you say, all of these, when you talk to Johan, we we judge people with addiction and other issues, but we don't know what's happened in their lives. And, you know, I always look at it. So people gave birth to these people. There were families involved. What's happened here is, is you know, it, it, it's myriad things. For them now to have somewhere to go where they feel respected, not judged, cared for and when they're ready to make another step to look at rehabilitation they know that they can do that safely and with people who really will care about them and the message that came out of the uh the exhibition for us was the the acknowledgement of their skill set their their capabilities and the fact that they needed to be recognised in the community. And you know what, Amy, the community loved that art exhibition. It went for three and a half weeks. It was just at a uh, shopping centre here in um, on the corner of Victoria and Lenox Street. <clears throat> 
and we're having another one this year. The community just said, you've got to do this again. So we're just getting underway to have another one this year. So, you know, it's never an injecting room or any any uh, facility like this will ever be the panacea for everything. And I think that's what the opponents or people who uh, are, don't like the injecting room and, and we acknowledge those people and we totally understand that they have their opinions and that's the way it is. And But I think for the work that it does do in connecting people and providing a safe place to people and reducing ambulances in our laneways and all of that sort of thing, I think it's made a massive difference. Now, uh, we are about to receive, or the government's about to receive, the second expert review panel report on the injecting room. One of the key foci of both the Margaret Hamilton expert review panel report, which came out in 2020, and this one coming out in 2023, there's been a focus on amenity. And so amenity, public amenity, is a key issue. So it, that will be interesting how people perceive that to be, whether it's improved or not. My view is it absolutely has for the reasons I've explained. But, uh, you know, we'll just see what happens. The other issue, of course, is that the injecting facility is a trial facility. And until it becomes a permanent facility, it's always under threat of closure. Mm. So the campaign continues, Amy. I mean, we, we are not resting on our laurels. There's still work to do. We would love some other facilities to be opened across Melbourne. It seems crazy in a country like Australia that we only have two. And Sydney opened in 20, 2001, so 2020, for 22 years it's been there. And it was only made permanent about 12 years ago. Uh, so this one is still it's in its fifth year. We would love it to be made permanent and for there to be other uh, facilities open across Melbourne and wherever we don't know, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, look, it's it's an ongoing story, really. It's not the, the end, you know, you can mm. never put the end, the end you know, <laughs> because it's, it's it's just one of the, you know, they're trying to get one up in Dublin and in the UK and, you know, it's just people are recognising that we really do need to support people through these sorts of facilities across yeah. the world. And to give people a sense of the Hamilton Report's key findings, within an 18-month period, over 119,000 visits were made to the facility, making it one of the busiest in the world. Thousands of overdoses were safely managed. 271 were classed as extremely serious. At least 21 lives were saved. There have been no deaths in the facility. And there had been a reduction in reports of public injecting. Additionally, the claims about the honeypot effect, which I know is quite a significant criticism, whereby people suggest that putting a safe injecting facility in that area is just driving more people into the area to use drugs. According to that report, the review panel said that most of the people using the facility were already coming to North Richmond before the trial was established to purchase and use heroin, citing a figure of 86% of the people going there were already going to the area previously. So I guess that gives people some idea of the shift in a numerical sense from the studies that have come out and the, the reports. But just to close out the conversation, Judy, then, do you see that the community might eventually 
get on the same page because there still obviously is criticism from some parts of the community of the safe injecting facility. And as you say, it is still at risk of not proceeding into the future if it's still at a trial stage. How do you see that gap, that area of disagreement closing? Uh, Look, a couple of things. One, the honeypot issue was covered extensively in the inquest that I attended and every person who spoke at that talked about honeypots you put an injecting room where there's already an existing honeypot. I mean, you wouldn't put yeah. an injecting room in an area where there's no, you know, there's not a, a need for it. Uh, so there's this, and Margaret Hamilton spoke extensively about that too, uh, as well. So uh, I don't, I don't subscribe to the view that it's created a honeypot that was already here. Um, in terms of the future, look, I think people. It's a bit of a parallel universe conversation with some people and that's, I get that. Some people don't like the facilities and that's just the way it is. A couple of things though. One, I think that there are, you can take a tour of the injecting room. I took a group through last Friday morning. Uh, it was fabulous. I think uh, you can just book, go onto the North Richmond Community Health Centre and look up the injecting room and you can, it's an event bright booking system. So if any of your listeners would like to go through, I would strongly recommend, especially people who might be sitting on the fence on this issue, it absolutely clarifies what it's about, what the staff do and, you know, what are the opportunities. So it's not just injecting, as I said before, but connecting. There is a lot of opportunities for staff. It's for relationship creation, for supporting people to move to the next stage if that's where they're at. Uh, but it's about keeping them alive. And even as Premier Andrews eventually said, you cannot be resuscitated if you are dead. That's yep. just the reality of this issue. So if you are alive, there are many opportunities. The other thing about the community coming on board, look, we've had, since the injecting room opened, we've had two state elections and a local government election. Uh, There was a state election in November 2018 and another one, obviously, three months ago and a local government election in 2020. People who opposed the injecting room, absolutely, as is their right, stood in those elections. Uh, Their polling didn't, you know, wasn't remarkable for the amount of social media and promotion and potentially some financial backing that they had. And the most recent one in November, we had a Liberal candidate who was definitely going to close the injecting room down, and he actually attracted fewer votes than the Liberal candidate did in 2014 before the injecting room opened. So I think in terms of the community, you know, I, I do believe that there is support for the injecting room. Interestingly, too, another commentary I do get, uh, we have a lot of renters in this area, and a few young people who come to live here have said to me, you know, one of the reasons we love living here, you've got an injecting room. And I said, really? Like, what's that, that about? And they said, well, it's about your social justice community. You know, imagine campaigning for a facility like that. Yeah. And I said, do you ever feel, and these were to young women, I said, do you ever feel unsafe? And they said, no. They said, we think this is great. Like, Wow. You know, mm. so traders are traders are an interesting group. Um, like a lot of shopping strips in Melbourne, Victoria Street has a lot of vacancies. It's often attributed to the injecting room. 
people, uh, local estate agents, know that it's actually the ridiculously high rents that are being asked with no repairs. You know, they, it's just it's there's lot, it's a very uh, complex area yeah. and issue, but it's across Melbourne. You know, so um, look. I, I, I don't know. That's the best way I can answer that question. Mm, it's a great it is question, a complicated one, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is, and it yeah. always will be. I mean, human yeah. beings, we are very complicated. And But I, I just really want to enforce how fabulous a community this is. Mm. So I just ask you, listeners, please, whenever you read a lot of negativity about it, it's, yeah, it's the opposite is true, and I'm just so proud of the people that I live with and I run into in the shops and in local pubs and things, it's just, it's wonderful, really. Yeah. And that community spirit does shine through in this book. It's very clear that it exists and it's very vibrant. So I absolutely know that if people pick up this book, they will get a very full sense of just what it's like to live there. The positives and some of the challenges that are still there, but obviously have been changed and shifted through the introduction of Victoria's first safe injecting facility. And you obviously played such a big role there, Judy, you and your fellow residents. So we take our hats off to you and say a big thank you to you for pushing through a lot of difficulty to get this on the agenda. And, uh, yeah, I I can't wait to see what comes out of this next report. And um, I just want to say thank you so much to you and the residents for your time campaigning on this and also for your time today, Judy, speaking with us. So thanks so much. Well, thank you, Amy. And I really, I really do appreciate it because it is obviously something I'm passionate about. But I always do a call to action so I'd ask your readers to read the book. But on page 277, I've got four videos, short videos that I'd really encourage people to look at. The three of them are only one minute each and there's a 14-minute video. It will give them a bit of an immersion into our campaign. And the other thing is the call to action is have a look at, come and take a tour of the injecting room. Go onto the North Richmond Community Health website, check it out, make a booking. And next time you're at a barbecue and someone is bagging it out, speak out about it, say, actually, that's not true. Why don't you go and have a a tour of the injecting room? You know, Mm. I I just think we need to counter the negative narrative, which is such an easy thing to do, the negative narrative. I want the positive narrative to be heard. So that's all I'm asking. (laughs) (laughs) That's huge, I know, but anyway... As I, as I airily leave the uh, conversation. But thank you so much, Amy. And I love the fact that you've read the book. That actually really helps in a conversation. I've had a few conversations with people who haven't read it. So oh. I really, really appreciate that forensic look you've had at it. And, you know, that's just very, I feel very humbled by that. Oh, thank you, Judy. It was a true pleasure to read. So thank you so much. Good on you. Thank you so much, Amy. All the best. You too. I've just been speaking with activist and campaigner Judy Ryan, who's been discussing her new book with me, You Talk, We Die, The Battle for Victoria's First Safe Injecting Facility, which is out now through Scribe Publications and was launched with Fiona Patton and Kathy McGowan. So Judy was in excellent company there and uh, I do absolutely recommend checking it out. And I'll put some links up to the videos that Judy mentioned on our social media as well. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
it is my true pleasure and delight to welcome two amazing people onto the show who I'm obsessed with, and they are Bridie Cotter and Tom Gaunt. And I say that because not only do I think they are the ideal couple, I just feel like they're just people to look up to when you see such a brilliant team that works together professionally, but also they truly grow the most amazing vegetables and produce. And uh, I can't wait to talk about their farming practices, which certainly employ regenerative farming practices, those that we might have talked about previously with Charlie Massey on the show, and also the produce that Bridie and Tom grow as part of Kinsfolk Farm out of Moriac. They are organic as well. So I can't wait to talk about that, but also to talk about their debut release through Hardy Grant. It's technically a pocket card guide, so it's not necessarily in bound form, but it's actually better that way because it means that you get to learn about gardening and the different types of vegetables that you might be growing using this really handy card guide, which is very accessible and very tactile as well. So we're going to be talking about that and getting some insights and tips from Bridie and Tom about how to have your own kitchen garden inspired by Kinsfolk Farm and the great approach that you guys have there. So I welcome onto the program now, Bridie Cotter. Hi there, Bridie. Hi, Amy. So excited to be here. Thanks My for having pleasure. us. Very excited to have you. Thank you. And hi there, Tom Gaunt. Thanks, Amy. It's great to be here. Great to have you both. And really, it's so wonderful to get a chance to have you on the show. I know that you listen to the show and it's really my honour that such brilliant people do listen. And I know there are so many listening now who would fall into that category. I have had a chance to eat your produce and go to Torquay Farmers Market and see how brilliant it is uh, and beautiful looking and it tastes just as great. So I wanted to understand the backstory of your lives now as farmers out at Kinsfolk Farm in Moriac and how it came to be because really you guys were kind of triple R heartland types, you know, living in the city, Bridie in music and Tom in design. A lot of people would certainly identify with those types of career trajectories, those listening, but they're also very passionate about their gardens. I can tell you that from listener feedback. So could you tell us a little bit about your story of how you came to be, how Kinsfolk Farm came to be? Thanks, Amy. Yes, you're very correct in the fact that our story and our beginnings as reference to becoming farmers, it's pretty roundabout. And yeah, we were definitely in the thick of um, living in the north of Melbourne and in the music scene and in the design scene and the party scene. (laughs) And um, yeah, we were and still are triple R tragics. Yeah, so I guess the beginnings came when I started working in a a big organic grocery store in Northgate whilst living with Tom and two of our best mates in Northgate around the corner. And I was studying music performance in the city at VCA and was trying to start a bit of a a music career and really enjoying that. And, And I absolutely loved studying music. I was a singer, I am a singer, and it's a huge part of me. But um, I also found that I had this interest 
in in food and good quality food um, because it tasted so good. And then you often found out about how there is a story behind some of the amazing produce that we had access to that the grocery store I was working in, but also we were getting a veggie box from someone who was picking it up from Dalesford, a farm in Dalesford. Tom and I were getting that fortnightly. So the, our interests really peaked around that time, discovering, yeah, that like a small-scale farm food scene and how that impacts community, impacts personal health and the environment. And, um, and that coincided with the time that Tom and our housemates and I, well, it was mainly Tom and his mate, Justin. Hey, Justin, Steph started growing food in the backyard of our share house and we got some chickens in the backyard two of which turned out to be roosters and we had to do something with that <laughs> which was a learning curve as well but yeah we started growing in the backyard and then Tom and I moved to our own place and continued that Tom turned pretty much this small East Brunswick duplex front and back garden into a bit of a food forest. It was just a rental. We're only there for one year, but it didn't matter. He put in all this time and effort to grow beautiful veg because we just wanted to to see how you could do it. And I think it became infectious. And yet from there, Tom, you you might want to continue chatting um, about how, yeah, Tom started working for an edible gardens company in Melbourne and did a PDC, didn't you, Tom? Yeah, I did that through um, milkweed permaculture and that sort of really, I guess, gave me a kickstart into wanting to dive deeper, really. And then at that point, we were really just itching to get out of Melbourne and we'd always have a love for the, for the surf coast down here. Bridie grew up in Geelong and I'd spent sort of my summer holidays down in um, Fairhaven. So we, yeah, just made the decision to, I guess, jump ship and head down to the coast. And we lived in, in Geelong for a couple of years, sort of while we were finding our feet. And I managed to land a job at a restaurant kitchen garden down in Berigara. And that sort of was my first first foray into, I guess, a large-scale edible garden. So that was sort of, I guess, my, you could call it apprenticeship and sort of learned on the job while listening to many podcasts and looking at many YouTube videos. And and then I guess at the same time, um, there sort of started to be this groundswell of the small-scale market gardening scene in Australia. It sort of had taken off in the States and Canada and Europe for, for a while. But yeah, we just became... I guess pretty obsessed with it at that point and wanted to learn more and do more. So um, we made the decision after going to the Torquay farmers market and other farmers markets in the area, we realised that there wasn't any local organic veg growers bringing their veg and herbs to market. And so there was this sort of big gap and we sort of said to ourselves that why don't we give this a crack? And I'd sort of learned enough by then. And Bridie was also working at some um, market gardens in the area, which were growing a little bit. So we sort of just um, plunged into it. And we, before we started, we drove up to the coast of um, Eastern Australia and visited a few farms, a few market gardens that had been doing it for a few years. And 
had some good chats with them and then headed down back down to to um, the surf coast and yeah we started the farm back in the spring of 2016. Gosh it's so exciting to think that you know you can start out in the inner city essentially in you know the northern parts of Melbourne creating a garden like that in a rental and then you're now working on your own farm it did make me think about the tenants who might take over that house that you left with them and whether they would be the luckiest tenants in the world to, to inherit a garden like well, that. We did, um, we did manage to get back there at some stage, like a few, I'm not sure how long it was after we after we left, but we'd planted the whole front garden out with, I think it was winter veg. Yeah. And we got back there and it was, you know, a metre high of broad beans, the front wow. fence and Romanesco broccoli and climbing peas. And it was just, I think they would have been pretty happy. Yeah. Oh, amazing. I was also really interested in what you're saying about this idea of, you know, growing local and people being able to access organic local vegetables. It's, it really is something that I think we're quite spoilt in Melbourne. You know, you'd go to the Carlton farmers markets and those organic farmers from Dalesford or Ballarat would be coming to you. You know, they travel a very long distance to come into the city and sell their produce to you. Whereas now out in the surf coast and the Ballerine and Geelong, we are quite lucky and we're very lucky to have Kinsfolk Farms. And I know that, you know, you go to Torquay Farmers Market and Aries as well when that's happening on a Sunday. What are some of the things that you've learned building a farm that clearly has to grow at a decent size scale to be able to bring produce to the market every week. And how did that differ to your approach when you were doing it in your backyard? Well, I guess what what didn't we learn? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the scale thing and what to bring to market and what to plant and how often it's an ever-evolving conundrum and lesson but I think we we definitely feel like we have come so far it's our seventh summer this summer just gone although we're apparently still in summer um (laughs) but yeah I think that 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 is probably the hardest thing in terms of scale and supply and demand but I guess Tom could speak to this a little bit more but we are getting it down to a finer art. Things change constantly. We are really lucky to have a very regular and supportive customer base, especially at the Torquay Farmers Market. And I think that's uh, not purely, but a huge part due to the fact that it's a weekly market and that Torquay is the type of community because it's just large enough, um, but just small enough to feel like a smallish town that they really get behind people who they develop a relationship with in terms of, uh, yeah, the, the customer um, relationship we have with so many of our regular customers we feel is quite special and we feel really connected to our community. But, yeah, growing vegetables outside is hard and but it's it's a part of the fun, I guess, mm. depending on your mood of the day. But I guess Tom could speak to that a little bit more. Tom? Yeah, well, going from, as you said, a, a, a backyard to acreage was a pretty, obviously, big step. But we, so we started on a 
site, which was about an acre overall. So, you know, in our first summer, we were growing on about an eighth of an acre and we sort of doubled each year. So second year was a quarter. And then in terms of growing space, we went up to half an acre and very quickly outgrew that. Um, you know, when you think about having to rotate your crops and transition into, into new seasons from summer into winter, and we found ourselves having to end our summer crops very quickly and just so we can get our winter crops in time. So we had been at that site for five years. So in the winter of 2021, we moved sites just down the road, luckily, to a more permanent and much larger site. We're on about five acres now. So it's enabled us to not only sort of grow more vegetables, but just grow as a business overall. We can now incorporate perennial crops and or, yeah, native crops as well. So um, basically creating more of a biodiverse property and also incorporating, most importantly, some cover crops between seasons, which allows our soil to, to rest and recover and just being able to feed our soil with a mix of biodiverse species is really important to us um, and not just bringing in, you know, compost or organic fertilisers. Yeah, we just think it's a really important step that we can now take for the years to come. So, yeah, we sort of found that we now almost had a really fresh start at this new, new space and, yeah, really starting to enjoy it. And we can now see that we can grow, you know, we're usually sort of in the height of summer um, up to about 30 to 40 different varieties, but now we sort of can push that um, even further and, yeah, we're really excited for the future. Yeah, well, it does remind me when I was speaking to Charlie Massey, you know, soil seemed to be such a crucial component for obvious reasons, given that you're growing this produce in that soil, it needs to be cared for and also the broader ecology. And I know that you've really focused on that as well on the farm. And this is also kind of a crucial strategy for people even at home is to focus on the plants that surround the vegetable crops and thinking about how you put together your garden. So I wonder if we could use that as a starting off point when we're thinking about our own kitchen garden, but also looking at your practices, how might they inform a much smaller scale local gardener? How might we still draw inspiration from practices that are regenerative and organic? So soil, no matter where you're growing or how you're growing plants, but especially, well, from our experience, I guess, to do with food plants, edible plants, Soil should be your number one focus because um, whether it be in pots, um, in garden beds or, you know, in a big piece of land like we have, acreage, you, your soil is what feeds the plants. You can definitely use water-soluble fertilisers and that's what, you know, hydroponic systems are completely built off. But we believe that if you've got strong, if you've got, soil that is full of microbes which eat on organic matter that is broken down which is plant matter it builds humus humus sequesters carbon humus becomes stable soil and it holds life and so growing plants 
from humus, from soil. They're able to build, you know, deeper tap roots and, and bring up all that nutrients. They incorporate mycelium as a part of the underground networks. I mean, it's it's beautiful and it's crazy. We don't know really anything about soil, especially us, something we both love to learn a lot more about. But if your plants above the ground are expressing happiness <laughs> and you know, a, this thing called plant expression, which is, you know, deep green, good plant expression, deep green colour, vibrancy, they're strong, their stalks are strong, and they don't seem to be getting smashed by the pests or disease. It generally means that your soil is, you know, up to scratch. It generally means that you're looking after your soil, you're feeding your soil, you're feeding the plants back into your soil, organic matter, letting your soil aerate and obviously watering it enough, but resting as well. Yeah, treating your soil like it is the basis of life, plant life, and I guess human life as well. So, Yes, you can definitely buy in soil to start off um, kitchen gardens and, and, and backyard gardens. If we're going back to our deck of cards, we suggest that you can grow anywhere, really, if you've got a little bit of sun and a little bit of space. You know, you can grow leafy greens and your herbs in pots, whether they be big or, or small or wicking pots. If you've got good soil and depth of soil, and you're happy to learn day by day, you can you can grow yummy, nutritious veggies without having to add much to them quite easily. And it's mm. and it's and it's fun and it's interesting and it tastes good. I was just yeah. thinking, because we bought your carrots for Christmas among other things. And when we roasted them, we thought, oh God, I'm so glad we didn't put honey on these because they didn't need honey. They had their natural sugars and it was the most rich, beautiful carrot I've had in forever. You know, it just made me appreciate just how special it is to either grow your own food or buy it from people like yourselves, Bridie and Tom. And I know that at the market, you know, we talk about, or we did speak about Bridie, your spirit vegetable Uh, which is the carrot. And I wondered, given that there are so many cards in this deck of cards and there are so many amazing tips and tricks in here, do you have any favourites that you want to share with us that, you know, it's either your spirit vegetable or you think it's particularly tricky and you want people to know what to do? Because I know that for me, coriander has always been the biggest challenge. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll mention something quickly and I'll give Tom a chance as well but I guess yeah if we were talking about my spirit vegetable which is the carrot I think I've just loved being able to have the opportunity to put in these cards and to give to people who are inquisitive and want to know more about growing um, or even just little cooking tips just putting in tiny little bits of knowledge that we hope will give people the confidence to at least give it a try and then try time and time again because often that's what you have to do. So with the carrot card, um, I don't have it in front of me right now, but I'm pretty sure I would have said carrots just need more space than you would expect to grow because you generally plant them directly, the seeds, which is called um, direct seeding. They just need more space so they can stretch out 
width-wise and stretch out length-wise and deep, um, dig their deep roots into friable soil. So your soil needs to be light, aerated, but not necessarily super rich, and they just need space. So, yeah, direct seeding your carrots. You can seed them fairly thickly, but once they germinate, once their little cotyledon and leaves pop up, if you can see that they're, you know, not going to have much room to stretch out like, you know, the size of your index finger lengthwise and um, widthwise, then, you know, you can pull some of those out. But, yeah, just the little mm. um, quick tips that hopefully people go, okay, I'll just give it a try and I'll look for that and hopefully they'll get the confidence to try it again because you invariably have to keep trying to get it better. That's so helpful. I wish yeah. we knew that before we tried carrots. Next time, <laughs> we failed. Yeah, no. <laughs> you can always hope for the next season. Yeah, that's very true. I, I appreciate that, Bridie. And Tom, do you have any favourites? Yeah, we we're big fans of Italian food, um, in particular what's called well, there's a few names for it, but chiminarapa or broccoli rap mm. or rapa, which is basically translates to turnip top. So it's a very standard and basic vegetable that is used widely in, in Italy. But we um, certainly do like bringing some different things to the market and it does take a bit of time for people to, I guess, love them. But, yeah, a bit of veg- bit of vegetables are some of our favourites. So um, chiminarapa and also radicchio and chicories, which thrive sort of in the cooler seasons. So now is a really good time to plant both of them because it does take, as I guess we move closer to autumn, We've got some cooler nights, so it does take a bit of time for them to establish themselves. But, yeah, radicchio in particular is sort of called, I guess, the rose of vegetables. You've got some stunning varieties and variegated varieties that sort of come originate from different areas of Italy. So, um, yeah, like the Castelfrancos, Tioggias, Roses and Treviso, if you grow like a, a multiple amount of them and, and throw them together in a salad, it is honestly the most stunning salad you'll produce. Uh, and yeah, and the, and the broccoli rab or chimichurri is just such a tasty and nutritious green that is just beautiful with like a orecchetti pasta or just as a side dish itself, mixed with garlic and olive oil. Yeah. So yeah, I think those two are certainly a couple of my favourites. I'm so intrigued by them. I haven't yet bought them, but I did see on your website there are recipes for different vegetables, so I feel like I might be able mm-hmm. to take the plunge. And also you can check out Kinsfolk Farm's Instagram because you also show how to cook with them yourselves, which is really great too. We have run out of time, but I just wanted to say a huge thank you to you both for putting together this deck of cards because you're really giving us such a unique insight into the things that you've spent years learning and perfecting and observing and we've now got access to that in this set of cards and it's a very special thing to have. So thank you for putting such amount of time and passion and effort into that and also into your farming and vegetables. And I really do hope that people check it out. It's called Home Harvest, Your Pocket Card Guide to Kitchen Gardening, which is out through Hardy Grant Books. A big thank you to you both, Bridie Cotter and Tom Gaunt of Kinsfolk Farm. Thanks so much for having us, Amy. We're massive fans of your show and the whole of Triple R. We really admire you. So thanks so much. We really appreciate it and had fun. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Amy. Thank you both. Cheers.
I love you both too. Make sure you say hi to them at the Torquay Farmers Market on a Saturday morning or if the Aries Inlet Market is also running on a Sunday, head on down there and you can check out Kinsfolk Farm on their Instagram or on their website, which has all the details of this pocket card guide as well. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.